It's Picture Lock on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Welcome to another episode of that world-famous award-winning show. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, filmmaker, film festival director, film critic, film publicist, and lover of film and TV. You can find all the back episodes and so much more at PictureLockShow.com. The 2018 DC Black Film Festival Call for Entries is now open. Filmmakers can submit through Film Freeway. The late deadline ends May 31st, so be sure to get your film in. You can use discount code DCBFF DISC25. That's DCBFF DISC25 for a 25% off discount on your entry fee. Visit DCBFF.org for more details. Now, guys, if you've been to youtube.com slash picture lock show, there's a lot of web URLs I'm spitting out of here. <laughs> if you've been to youtube.com slash picture lock show lately, you know that I recently did a review of Salam, which played at the 2018 Tribeca Film Festival. I have the director of the film, Claire Fowler, on the show today. I'm also going to be talking with fellow film critic Leslie Kumal of Cinema Siren. And then we'll wrap out hearing from the Epic Film guys. It's been a while, so it's great to have them back. Who have a great event for cancer awareness and research going on this weekend. This one is packed but entertaining. In fact, it's so packed that I had to cut it down for the radio. But if you subscribe to the podcast, as always, you'll be able to hear the full and extended version. But that's all ahead on Picture Lock. Hey, this is Shiyu. This is Chuyin. We're the programming directors of DC Chinese Film Festival. You're listening to Picture Lock. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson. And in Salam, a female Lyft driver navigates the night shift in New York City while waiting to hear life or death news from her family in Syria. I have the writer-director of the film, Claire Fowler, on the line with me. Claire, welcome to Picture Lock. Thank you. Well, Claire, the first question that I always start with is, when did you first fall in love with film? Um, that's kind of, well, I don't know how hard of a question that is. I guess it's a hard question to actually retrace those steps. But I think when I was a kid, I grew up in a really tiny village in North Wales, and there really wasn't much to do, especially in the winter. And uh, my dad... Uh, is a bit of a hoarder and he back in the day was hoarding um, VHS tapes and I remember one day finding Terminator <laughs> and um, put like because I was I was just kind of bored and I was like oh I've heard of this movie <laughs> and I put it on and I was like wow this is awesome and then I found you know everything else that he had like Terminator 2 and Die Hard and Die Hard 2 and then I just kind of ripped through my dad's VHS collection. And um, I guess it kind of went from there. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Um, going through the VHS tapes as your introduction to films, that's, that's pretty cool. So you had, did you have to do a lot of rewinding or? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I also remember that my dad also had these, um, you know, he had a bunch of uh, Looney Tunes cartoons that I think he just recorded straight from the TV. So I remember, yeah, there was always a lot of rewinding to try and find our favorite one. Um, it's kind of crazy. This is really aging me. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay, though, because I, like, I still remember my parents had, uh, you know, if you're able to afford one, like the little rewinder that you would sit next to your VCR. So like you could rewind the film and like start playing another one or something like that. And so you always had to put that in right before you took the film back to uh, Blockbuster. So no, nah, I'm there with you. Um, maybe we're both dating ourselves. <laughs> if you could, let's get a little history lesson. Um, just tell, tell us how you got started in the industry. So I, I studied fine arts at university and um, pretty much as soon as I got there, I started making these kind of weird little experimental films and videos. Um, and I I was lucky enough to be introduced to some masters of um, the art form like Tarkovsky and um, the French New Wave, you know, so it was kind of like really for me eye-opening in terms of being introduced to films that, 
you know, weren't available in North Wales or weren't readily available at least. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started making these tiny little films and a lot of them were very, very simple. It was like no, it was just, you know, like a single shot and not an exciting single shot, just like a static frame, like a tableau kind of thing. Um, and once I left college, I kind of was trying to fit myself into the art world and not really feeling like that was the place for me. And I got really, really lucky. And my brother, who's a nurse, was working for this um, healthcare organization which provides healthcare to Palestinian kids um, in Palestine and in other countries in the Middle East. And he had been bigging me up to the CEO of the charity saying, my sister went to Oxford. She's a really great filmmaker. She's you know, super excited about working with you guys. She'll make you a film. And then he called me and he said, I've got you a film gig. You're going to make a documentary in Palestine. And I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> um, so that was, you know, and that's how things happen. I think it's really, so much of it's about luck and about contacts. And I was just really lucky that I had my brother, you know, advocating for me. So I learned as much as I could about Palestine. I was reading as many books as I could and um, reading as many books about um, you know, the political situation and the healthcare situation and, and, and about um, what this charity was doing out there as well, making sure that, you know, I was actually aligning myself with an organization that I, I admired um, and respected. And they're called the Palestine Children's Relief Fund and they're a fantastic organization. And I went out there and I made this film called Open Heart, which was about um, a small boy he was like 18 months old at the time who lives in Nablus in the northern part of the West Bank and it followed his journey his literal journey through checkpoints to get to the hospital in Jerusalem that was treating him and then followed him through the operation and it was kind of crazy like the power cut out midway through his operation Um, his father was not allowed to pass the final checkpoint to accompany him and his mother to the surgery Um, and then you know through to the end and thankfully it was a happy ending for this little kid so that was kind of like my first breakthrough i'd say into the industry and then i guess that led on to me getting a fulbright scholarship which brought me to new york and to um the film school at columbia and that's where i i kind of got my intro into fiction filmmaking you're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and I'm talking with the writer-director of Salam, Claire Fowler. Claire, that's a really interesting story, um, and I want to I wanna switch gears and kind of bring it into Salam, but I, I feel like since you're from um, North Wales and, uh, you know, making it over to the U.S., um, there's a lot that you have, I feel, learned in terms of different cultures, right? Um, and I think that that is also evident in, in the work that you've done in the past and especially with Salam. So if you could, uh, just let the audience know in your own words, what is Salam about? Salam is about a Palestinian Syrian female Lyft driver who has to navigate the night shift while um, waiting for life and death news from Syria. That that was like straight off of the synopsis. That, that was good. Um, so I want to talk about this film because I saw it for uh, 2018 Tribeca, and um, and it really just spoke to me. Um, and if we can, so I want to go broad, and then I'll go kind of more into the the nuance of the film. Um, but could you talk a little bit about empathy and? stereotypes, because I think that um, those are two of the different themes that really stuck out to me. You know, having empathy for other people and then also the stereotypes that we have. Yeah. Uh, When I first went to Palestine, I already was, um, I had a basic grasp of the situation, um, the conflict, the Arab-Israeli conflict. Um, So for me, it was really about Um, just kind of making sure that I had the facts at my disposal. Um, And then for me, it was about my empathy just grew um, for the Palestinian people. And that was, so I felt like the film that I was making was 
you know, it, it wasn't like I'd just been hired to make a film. I actually really cared about what I was making. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really my first insight into um, the Palestinian people and how repressed and how badly treated I do feel they've been, and not just by Israel, but by, my, by my own country, by many other countries in the world. And I guess as an immigrant coming to the United States, I could see how lucky I was because especially when you look at, you know, the, the, the rhetoric that Trump was kind of um, churning out through the election. And then ever since he's been elected where I think at one point he said something about like whites, Scandinavians were welcome in this country as immigrants, but Africans were just despised or they were just, um, you know, leeching off the country. And I was just like, what? This Mm. is crazy. You know, you Mm -hmm. cannot just paint everybody with the same brush. I mean, it's just really, it should, people should be appreciated for who they are and what they've done, not what country they're from, not how much money they have in their bank account. Um, So that really spoke to me. And I really wanted to make a film that was about a really good person who was Arab and she's Muslim and she's not special. She's not, she's not particularly poor. She's not particularly rich. She is um, actually quite representative of many people from Syria and from the Middle East in that her situation is really tenuous. And that was the most important thing that I wanted to do is represent a good person who is going through a bad time and a bad time that many people from her country are also experiencing um and then what was the second part of the question um i think you kind of actually hit it is is the empathy as well as stereotypes and kind of breaking down the stereotypes that we have yeah i mean one of the things i found after i made my first documentary in palestine i was obviously getting invited to a lot of um palestinian film festivals which was really great And a couple of times I would encounter people who didn't understand what I was trying to do and they would just kind of go off on an anti-Israel rant. And I'm like, I'm not, and I'm not anti-Jewish. I'm not anti-Israel. You know, I'm, I'm just a supporter of the Palestinian people and the freedom of movement and their autonomy and access to healthcare, please don't come at me with this like hate speech against another group because that's really not what I'm about. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of, you know, that struck a chord with me as well. And I really try in my work to be respectful of, of different cultures and respectful of individuals. It's Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with the writer-director of Salam, Claire Fowler, Claire, let's jump into the film, and this, I'm going to try to keep it as spoiler-free as possible, but I think um, one of the things, at least for me watching it, you really open with, um, I think, a disarmament of our stereotypes, right? So uh, in the first opening scene, um, you have Bring the Pain from Method Man, and you have this uh, Muslim woman wearing a hijab, and she's walking through the streets of New York. First off, like meth and the old school Wu Tang, like there's something that's very gritty about that music, and I'm talking about sonically that sound. And definitely Method Man's voice is, uh, you know, one of those unique voices of hip hop. And so I think with the the visual framing of you know this Muslim woman and you know the the oral oral uh sound of uh method man those two kind of feel like they shouldn't be together and so in in some ways again i'm talking about breaking down uh our stereotypes i think like from the jump you kind of do that with uh the music as well as who we see and then from there before we actually have some dialogue she walks into you know her family's apartment and they're dealing with a conflict, and it's a conflict that's already like going on from the moment that we, uh, you know, walk into to the room, you know, from the camera's perspective. But it's a universal issue, and they're dealing with a mouse that's in the apartment, right? And uh, how we kind of react. And I honestly, I, I was a, a lot like Rashad. I, I was just like. If there's a mouse in the house, like, ah, I'm probably going to be the one that's up on top of the chair as well. So I think that um, both of, like, you start off, start us out kind of like saying, hey, 
you know, this, you, you break down the, maybe the stereotypes that we would think of, you know, is a Muslim woman going to be listening to a method man? And then on top of that, um, by taking us into a universal story that we could all relate to, hopefully we don't all have like mice in our homes, but if you've ever been around one, you can kind of relate to the family. Could you talk a little bit about, um, you know, kind of starting us out in a place where we can relate to the main character? Yeah, um, so I wanted to, I wanted Method Man because I, I, I also work as a script supervisor and my first kind of introduction to hip hop was working on this show which only ran for one season on VH1 called The Breaks and Method Man played a character in that. Yes. And I remember one of the guys said to me, that's Method Man and I was like, who's he? <laughs> he was just disgusted, disgusted with me. Um, and it's embarrassing, you know, I just, you know, it just, it, it, that hip hop culture wasn't something that reached me in North Wales. It has reached North Wales, but not me personally. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of my first intro to Method Man's music and I guess the Wu-Tang Clan. Um, but really the idea that Salam is, she's not just kind of a, a stereotypically meek woman in a headscarf. Um, that, I can't really take credit for that. I, when I was in Palestine, making uh i think it was the second documentary i made out there i was introduced to this woman who was a couple of years older than me and she was palestinian she'd been born in palestine but she'd grown up somewhere in ohio and then she'd moved back to palestine um to with to get married and to have kids and i remember she asked me if i wanted to go and smoke shisha with her like hubba bubba some people call it and uh, she rocked up outside my hotel in this a sports car with the top down and she had her hijab on and huge sunglasses and she was like rocking like hip, banging out hip-hop music and I was like this is awesome I have to <laughs> use this in a movie and I honestly I don't know what hip-hop she was playing but I do remember being in the car with her and it was really filthy and I was like this is so cool we're just like <laughs> driving around Ramallah with this really beautiful cool Muslim woman with you know looking fashionable as hell she looked like she was driving around Cannes or something so that's kind of where that idea came from I mean I just I just totally stole her being and her name is Salam so she really inspired the film that was kind of like the this the beginning image of the film was her um yeah yeah and it's beautifully it's well done um and sometimes that's what it is Uh, you know life inspires art so so from there I think uh within the film definitely for me personally it was just kind of like okay like I, I really kind of settled in and I, I I automatically sided with uh, Salam like I'm down for it. and then she gets this news of um, you know the family back home you know there's a bombing and um, just kind of wrestling with this news that her husband could you know not you know it's life or death as as the summary of the film uh, goes um, but. Again, I think you bring it back to that universal truth of what it feels like when you're waiting to hear if a family member is okay or not. Because what winds up happening is you still have to move forward with your life, but at the same time, like in the back of your mind, you're really thinking and pondering, is this person okay, etc. So could you talk a little bit about why you chose not only just to uh, you know, allow her to get this news, but then to kind of go through the rest of her night with this weighing on her. Yeah, that was that was really inspired by um, seeing other people kind of going through that experience in London during the invasion of Baghdad. Again, I'm aging myself. <laughs> I was working at this media company as a secretary at the time whilst I was in school. It was like a part-time job. And uh, there was these two Iraqi women who were the secretaries, the main secretaries, and I was basically kind of covering their lunch hour. And I remember I would arrive a few minutes early and they would be glued to Al Jazeera and CNN. And they were really London, like Londonized women. You know, if you met them, I mean, London's like New York. It's It's a very diverse city. So you don't, go around wondering where everybody is from you know these women were british they had british accents they were like 
super into their British clubs and their British bars and going out and doing, you know, kind of socialite British things. But they had family in Iraq and they were of Iraqi descent. And they were really terrified when they, and they were glued to the news. And that was the only way they were finding out what was going on in their own country because um, communications were blocked. So that really resonated with me that these women to, uh, you know, just the naked eye, just everyday appearance, you think they're British and they are, but they also have this additional um, heritage link. And right now it's, you know, it's, it's being attacked and they, they're, they're completely helpless. All they can do is, is just wait for news. Um, and on a personal level, uh, my parents, both of them ha have not been in the best of health for quite some time. And I do remember there was a time, I, th I think it was my my dad went on holiday to Scotland with my mom or something and he had a health scare. And part of the health scare was um, he lost his eyesight. He went blind for a few days. Wow. And I was driving with my boyfriend at the time, I think driving from like Wales to London, and I got this phone call telling me what happened. And I was just like, wow, I don't know if my dad's going to be able to see again. Um, and, you know, and that actually wasn't even the first time I've had that kind of phone call about my dad. There was another time where he um, had uh, like a, a heart health scare and he was in hospital. And that feeling of helplessness um, and I remember that when I was driving, I had to keep driving because my boyfriend at the time couldn't drive and we were at the side of a motorway. Mm. Um, so we just had to kind of keep moving. And that, yeah, that really fascinates me. Not everybody has the luxury of being able to, you know, just kind of indulge themselves and, and just sit and, and wait for news. And that's possibly not even the best thing to do. Um, so, yeah, those were the kind of the the ideas that kind of came together for that. Yeah. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with a woman who understands how to take the pieces of life that we all experience and sew them together into the beautiful film, Salam. It's the writer-director, Claire Fowler. Uh, Claire, I mean, this has been a great conversation. I really, it's so, it's so much fun for me as, uh, you know, film critic and, you know, just lover of film um, to be able to, you know, see this at Tribeca and now talk to you, uh, you know, get more of the backstory behind it. Because um, in many ways, you know, like I said, the film just kind of spoke to me on one level, but now kind of hearing, you know, um, these different pieces that actually helped you to stitch the movie together is really amazing. Unfortunately, we're going to have to kind of wrap up the interview. Um, but if you could let the audience know, how can they follow the film and follow you online as well as social media? Uh, yeah, so my film has been um, selected for distribution by a French-German company, which is quite random, uh, <laughs> called Sal Salaud Morissette or Salud Morissette. Um, so they're kind of pushing it and, and trying to get it out to more and more festivals. Um, that's probably, I, I can, given as I can barely say it myself, it's probably easier just to kind of find me online. My name is Claire Fowler. Uh, we have a Facebook page. It's just Salam Short Film, which you can find. Um, and I'm pretty active on Instagram, but I have a really stupid Instagram handle. It's Flash Fluff which was just a stupid nickname I was given many, many years ago. And it probably <laughs> is very inappropriate right now, but it just sounds like a porn name or something, but it's not, I promise. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, Claire, once again, uh, congratulations on your film. And I do want to give a shout out to your c cinematographer, uh, Nicholas Buck. I think he did an excellent job in terms of just capturing the, the light of New York, as well as, I mean, it's beautiful shots. You know, because the film kind of takes place over the course of one night and, you know, just seeing um, dusk, yeah, in the morning, yeah. early morning, yeah. Just seeing seeing that, I mean, it also sets a, a mood and a pace. So, uh, shout out to him. But, Claire, thanks again for coming on Picture Lock. I really appreciate it. Oh, no, thanks for having me. Let's take a quick break for promos. Stay tuned. 
What's up, guys? Thank you so much for listening to and supporting Picture Lock. I absolutely love film, as you know, and have given my life to studying the medium. As a filmmaker, I understand what it takes to make a film from its inception to the big screen. As a critic, I've been able to see the business of film from the marketing side of things. And as a film festival director, I've been able to see the distribution side, but more importantly, the enormous amount of talented filmmakers out there creating and crafting stories from their heart. And that's why I've started Picture Lock PR. If you're a filmmaker or producer looking to engage audiences and create relevance around your latest or upcoming project, head over to PictureLockPR.com. We can help you with your film's publicity from pre to post-production. Get more information and see the clients we've helped in the past at PictureLockPR.com. PictureLock PR. Finally, a partner as passionate as you. I'm Nick. And I'm Justin. We are the Epic Film Guys, and we'd like just a moment of your time to talk about an extremely important event coming up this May. Last year, we hosted the live stream for The Cure, a 12-hour live stream fundraiser where we raised $2,500 for the Cancer Research Institute. 86 cents out of every dollar raised goes to research toward finding a cure. And this year, we're aiming to smash that goal, and we need your help to do it. Join us from May 18th through the 20th for 30 hours of amazing live stream content from us and a whole host of amazing podcasters who will be joining us to try to reach $5,000. For more information, please visit www.livestreamforthecure.com. Together, we can make a difference. Hi, this is Nancy Bursky, the director of The Rape of Rishi Taylor, and you're listening to Picture Lock. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and my next guest is an expert on animation and film art and owner of Art Insights Animation and Film Art Gallery. I am so excited to have on the show today, Leslie Kumal. Leslie, welcome to Picture Lock. Thank you so much. I love the pimping of my art gallery. That's so delightful. <laughs> it's so appreciated. No problem. I mean, you know, really. I, I want to make sure I get that in there for folks, um, especially. You're going to come visit. I, exactly. I, I will have to do that. Um, so we'll definitely have to drop the address or whatever at the end since this okay. show airs in the D.C. area. So folks can definitely come check it out. Um, but Leslie, your first question I always start out with is when did you first fall in love with film? Okay, well, uh, my dad, uh, I'm, I'm from Europe, and uh, I watched, for example, I saw Star Trek in Italian, and which is really funny because I still fell in love with Spock with an, <laughs> when he was speaking in Italian. So wow. apparently he's sexy in every language, or <laughs> at least to people who like smart people. But anyway, so I saw um, cartoons. Um, I, I fell in love with Chuck Jones um, cartoons and cl- classic Disney animation. So the super early ones, the first animated feature, Snow White and Bambi, Dumbo, Fantasia, the, the like World War II um, animated features, that kind of era. And, and then I loved jazz and loved music and so I loved musicals and we, we got to see a lot of movies. I don't think they played a lot of, in the United States, um, musical films with uh, Lena Horne in them and people of color more were played in Europe than they were, it turns out later that I didn't know. But I grew up seeing those those um, features. And it was just, I mean, they were so wonderful. And and the women were so glamorous and so so interesting and complicated especially if it was pre-haze code you know especially the ones from the early from the late 20s so i just you know i just fell in love with movies i was four or five six years old my dad loved them uh he watched them with us and he used to give us quizzes about who was who and so by the time i was about 10 i knew all these really weird random you know, B or like uh, Eve Arden was one of my favorite actresses when I was like eight. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and I'm not 80 years old. So, you know, I've just always loved um, wisecracking dames and powerful women and interesting characters that were uh, women in film. And I just, you know, had an experience personally because from just my own 
history of what I watched is I saw powerful women, you know, Betty Grable, who may have, may have been super sassy, but she was also, um, you know, really powerful. And I knew in real life she was, she had spent a lot of time working with, with the GIs and soldiers who were wounded. Bet, uh, Betty Davis did the same thing. And so I was just fascinated with all of that stuff. And it was just a, you know, my whole life I've loved movies. You know, that's awesome. And I, I have to pause for a second to give a salute to your father because with my kids, and I'm glad to to find out that, like, I'm not um, an, a crazy guy for this, but <laughs> with my kids, I will literally say a quote. Um, and I did this even this weekend. I was like, my I think my daughter said something, and I was like, you got it, Johnny, as in she got it right. And then I was like, do you guys know what movie that's from? And they were like, no. And so I was like, well, hold on one second. I pulled out The Last Dragon, <laughs> and then I went to this scene, and I, I played it for them. And they were like, oh, can we watch the rest? I was like, nah, y'all aren't old enough. They're three and five. But, however, they will be, <laughs> hopefully they will be something like you when they grow up and have all these random facts and quotes and be able to relate it to different movies. So salute to your father. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Um, well, and but, not just that, there's a connection between you and your kids that is steadfast and long-term through that kind of cultural reference. You know, so I think people really underestimate all of the Joseph Campbell mythology and the, the, the powerful archetypes that are in film that really bring people together um, and families who watch them together. I think it brings people together. Yeah, no, you're definitely correct. And, and and it's amazing. I think that's why we love cinema, right? So folks, if you're listening, um, you know, Leslie and I are both members of the Washington, D.C. Area Film Critics Association. Um, and so we both share this passion for film. And I, I definitely want to get into um, why you want to be a champion of especially women in film. Um, but if you could just kind of for the audience, give us your breaking in story and kind of uh, what has led you to this point um, so that we can kind of get into that conversation. But like, how did you get into the industry as, you know, art of film as well as film criticism? Well, I went to school for performing art. I, I studied jazz vocals as a singer and uh, and actually trained with Ellis Marsalis, went in Brentford Marsalis' dad. And, um, and then I studied poetry and writing and and, and performance as an actor, and but I didn't really like being around people that were performers. <laughs> so, they were annoying. <laughs> so, um, and a lot of times um, they were filling, I mean, not everyone, certainly a lot of musicians are pretty, uh, you know, a lot of people who are in, the, in that world are very deep, but, you know, not when you're 20. And so... Uh, when I got out of school, I uh, was looking naively. I thought, oh, well, I don't want to be around pretentious people, so I'm going to work in visual art. <laughs> nice. So, yeah, so this guy was um, opening, a, uh, was switching his gallery to all animation art, and this was in 1988. So, like, very few people. There were only four other art galleries that specialized in animation in the world, and this was going to be the fifth. And so I took the job and I was, you know, like 20 because I had graduated from college young and I started working with him and I just believe in knowing my product because I was in sales. So I started calling and um, getting to know all of these animators like Frizz Freeling and Chuck Jones and Mark Davis, all of these people who created the characters and the uh, features and, and shorts that we know and love and watch over and over. And I got all of this information from them. And, uh, and then they slowly started passing away. And that's kind of how people become experts, I think, because they do a lot of research and they get to know people who know more than they do. And then cut to, I opened my own art gallery and I got to know this guy named John Alvin, who is really one of the top cinema artists ever. Um, he did the movie poster for Blade Runner and Young Frankenstein and Beauty and the East and Lion King and Little Mermaid and 200 other movies. And I started selling his work. And all of that at the same time, I was also writing a lot of blogs about the film art and about the importance of it. Because a lot of people would come in the gallery and be like, oh, you sell kids art. 
um, is there a real art gallery in the oh, center? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, all the time. And I used to have a really bad attitude about it. But now, I mean, because first I was like, um, oh, let me explain it to you. And then I was like, oh, my God, are you kidding? And then I was like, oh, um, actually, let me explain it. So, like, I've sort of gone all the way through all of the stages of irritation to acceptance. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and start, I've been writing a lot of blogs to explain the history and the importance and all of that. And it's just a, a few of my friends um, wrote for newspapers and they wanted to hire me to write film reviews in their paper because we used to talk about movies all the time and I said I'd do it. And people started reading me like from the beginning, which was really cool. And I got a following. And so then I started my own website cinema siren because i am guiding film lovers through a sea of celluloid and um so so then i really was the whole time focused on women in film you know women on the screen women behind the camera women below the line and noticing how few there were and sometimes i would love a movie and i would look up who was in the film or watch the credits and I wouldn't see any women at all except for in the production office and hair and makeup and that was it mm. you know you know when there's not a female editor you know you're in trouble <laughs> right. when there's not even a female editor I mean come on people right. and so I really wanted to start championing as much as I could women in front of and behind the camera women who were making the difference because what I started noticing was there were very few women who got anywhere in Hollywood without becoming a producer. Well, that was interesting to me. What's up with that? And it turns out it's because they weren't getting films made that they wanted to be in. They didn't want to be another girl who got killed and then had the glassy eyes that they did the autopsy on. You know what I mean? They didn't mm. want to be the, the girl that, you know, they didn't want to be the Madonna. They didn't want to be the whore. They didn't want to be a, a flat stereotype. They wanted to be a three-dimensional character. And in order for those to exist, they had to either make them as a writer or produce them as a producer. So that all of that was really interesting to me. And that's how it got me to where I am now, which is focusing on almost, ex I mean, really, if I see a film that has no women in it whatsoever, I'm just like, okay. I mean, Dunkirk. Okay. <laughs> there were no women there. Right, you know, right. The occasional nurse. But he could have hired someone in his crew, for God's sake, right? Mm, mm -hmm. As great, and I, and I love him. I think, well, he does, his wife is a producer, so there you go. There is that. <laughs> Even he does have women in his crew, so there's something. Right, right. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with Leslie Kumal, the founder of Cinema Siren. Leslie, um, I think that what you're doing is extremely important. And, you know, we had talked a little bit off uh, off the air about how there are so many different sites and so many, like, now you got apps where you can put in your movie reviews and things like that. Um, but everyone's talking about the blockbusters. Not enough people are talking about, uh, you know, the small films that actually are, are telling a great story. And so if you could, just in terms of, like, with uh, Cinema Siren, and I want to get into women rocking Hollywood. Um, just how do you kind of choose those films to champion, uh, just in, in regard to every year as film critics, you know, we see so many films. Um, but how do you kind of find the, the gems that you are leading, you know, the followers to? Well, I have to, this is a great question because one of the things you kind of have to do, or I try to do as much as possible, is go online and look at all of the sites that are production companies, you know, big and small, um, go on uh, places that announce what all of the releases are um, for every week. Because a lot of times films you that you, I don't even find out about, you don't see trailers, it's not listed on Rotten Tomatoes, it's not listed in any of the major um, uh, film sites. Mm -hmm. You really have to do a lot of research to find these, like, you know, three of my favorite movies this year were very, you know, not a lot of people heard about them. The Writer, Lean on Pete, uh, You Were Never Really Here. These were all films that had really powerful messages and stories and were, had complicated characters, uh, had interesting roles for women. 
And without a lot of research, you're not going to find them. So mm-hmm. I just do as much research as I have to in order to find. I mean, right now I'm, I'm um, doing research on a movie called Nancy, which was really interesting and very complicated character. And it was it took forever for them to make to get the film made. It's directed by a woman. It stars a woman and it's got a bunch of women below the line. Um, another film that was like that I thought was really interesting is Flower, which has a really interesting, complicated character that's basically like, um, uh, what's the show, the movie with Tom Cruise where he has the prostitutes and it's really famous. Risky I just Business? Can't... Risky Business. Yeah, exactly. okay. <laughs> so it's like Risky Business. I, it's been a while. It's like Risky <laughs> Business, but it's with a girl instead of a guy. And I mean, it's not that story, but it's basically that kind of character. And when you watch it, you're like, why does this feel weird? You're like, oh, yeah, because you never see a girl like this portrayed on film. And uh, it's directed by a guy. But all of the department heads below the line are women, which I thought was so amazing. You know, Mm -hmm. he didn't have to do that Mm -hmm. as as a man who wrote it and directed it. He could have hired anybody he wanted to. But he didn't. He hired a bunch of women. God has blessed him for that. And that, that is the kind of film that I am going to promote or at least bring attention to. Yeah, most definitely. So if you could, um, let's talk a little bit about women rocking Hollywood, you know, because I think this kind of fits into what you're talking about. What made you decide to start it? And, uh, you know, what is it about for the audience that's listening? Okay, so... Uh, I've been doing panels at San Diego Comic-Con for about 15 years. Uh, They started action panels because, as I said, a lot of the the people that I knew in animation, animators were dying and they were old and they know so much about the history of film. And so I started making, you know, building panels a long time ago, back when not that many, you know, a lot smaller uh, con, when it wasn't like however many hundreds of thousands of people were going. Mm-hmm. And um, so I had been doing them for years and years. And before the big Me Too and It's Time and all that, uh, I was already, I mean, as, as I said, those people who are paying attention know about the amount of misogyny and homophobia and racism in the United States. And if you didn't know before a year ago, you do now. So... <laughs> Uh, I knew and I was aware of what was happening in the industry, especially when it comes to studio films, the woeful lack of uh, representation uh, of female directors. For example, this year there are three female directors that have directed a studio film out of like 90. Um, Three were women. Um, So Uh. that just gives you an idea of... I mean, we're not even talking about the Bechdel test and all of that, which is also a horrible, you know, problem about equality in front on on screen and stories that represent the reality of how women are and how women speak to each other. Um, I'm talking about female directors and the fact that they are not getting why aren't they being considered to do the next blockbuster you know Uh this year so i had i started a panel called women rocking hollywood which bt dubs is the biggest pain in the ass to put together i can't even tell you because (laughs) it you know these people aren't going to comic-con it's not like they're gonna send you know uh rosemary rodriguez who is amazing and a wonderful person and um she is a guest director on um, Jessica Jones and Walking Dead, and she was one. She was a director and producer for Rise, and um, I mean, there's so many uh, directors who would love to go to Comic Con, but you know why they're not going to be brought to Comic Con. So I have to um, get sponsorship. I have to get money so that I can pay for them to come to Comic Con and be on this panel that talks about the future of film from the perspective of female directors and the work they're doing, because it's really more about promoting them and promoting the work of women in film LA, which everyone should join and everyone should follow because they're amazing. And they do a lot of great work for women in film. Um, And it's a nonprofit that uh, has a bunch of initiatives and um, they raise money for, uh, for women who want to make movies and they're wonderful. So they support um, the panel by being on it and talking about, where we all are in terms of 
um, percentages and how moving forward people can help, especially how fans can help um, by following female filmmakers and promoting them and retweeting and talking about them because word of mouth for indie movies makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is my third year. Every year you have to, you know, they don't automatically give you a panel. So I apply for a panel. I build a bunch of people on, you know, put a bunch of people on the panel, which requires me calling agents and uh, managers for about three months repeatedly. (laughs) Say, Hey, look online. It's on, you can go onto my YouTube channel and you can see on cinema siren that here are my panels. I actually know how to moderate and I'm really authentically just trying to help. And then they're like, Oh, wow, that's really cool. Sure. We'll do it. Yeah. So, uh, so if people want to see some women who are absolutely amazing and are doing the best work, uh, I mean, they're not the only ones doing the best work, but they're doing amazing work in film and in television. You can go on my uh, YouTube channel for Cinema Siren, and you can see these, you know, the entire panels are on there. And it's they're amazing women, and they're doing such great work, and they should be hired to make big blockbusters so that the next movie they make, they can make a tiny indie that they write and direct and have the money to, to produce. So that's why I do it, and that's what I'm doing. And then there's also a website, Women Rocking Hollywood, and all the info is on there as well. Awesome. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson. I've been talking with Leslie Kumal, the founder of Cinema Siren. Um, Leslie, before we wrap this interview out, I think the last question is probably the, the biggest question that I think um, I would love for you to answer, and that is, why is it important um, that we care about women in film? Um, because I think so many times, especially now with um, you know Me Too movement, and there's there's this big gap in terms of culture where people are actually analyzing like what are we being fed and what's going on behind the scenes. Um, but I think that as society a lot of times it can be okay it's in front of my face right now oh yeah that's something good to think about but then you forget about it two weeks later so why is it important that we highlight our female directors and the stories that are being told by women and just in terms of the industry as a whole making sure that there is equality um, for women well, I want to be clear to say that it's not just women that we need to worry about. It's it's all people. It's all people of color. It's LGBTQ. It's diverse voices. And why that's so important is that that's who we are. We're a diverse world. We're a diverse country. And the more, I mean, we got into the trouble that we're in in this country because people were not aware of just how rampant um, xenophobia Uh, homophobia, misogyny, racism, how rampant it really was. And because people are not seeing a diversity of well-represented people on, you know, reflecting themselves and reflecting everyone in the country on screen. You know, if all you see is gangbangers, then you're going to think every black person is a gangbanger. But that clearly is not the case. (laughs) And so, but, you know, you're like... I think if all you ever see is one representation of of somebody that you are not on screen or as a writer or director, then that's your frame of reference. And not everyone gets out and about. Not everybody goes around the world and sees what what's out there. So mm. if if it's not represented in pop culture, then then we're not really doing our job as a society. Everybody needs to have a voice. I'm not saying that as a social justice warrior, although I bloody well am and I'm proud (laughs) of it. But I am saying it as somebody that cares about other people and cares about who we are as a society. If we can't give voice to everyone, then we're not giving voice to anyone. That's really what it comes down to. That was you knocking that one out of the park. (laughs) (laughs) So so Leslie, uh, just wrapping out here, if you could, folks, obviously, um, I I just love that answer. Uh, If if you want to follow Leslie, Leslie, would you let people know how they can uh, reach out to you and follow your work? All right. So on Twitter, we are um, 
women rock film. That's um, that's women rocking Hollywood, and that's a good place to go because I I do try to retweet and highlight a lot of female directors and the work they're doing. So you can find more women to follow and more diverse voices through following me there. Um, and I do respond to people if they're saying things or talking to me there. So there's that. Uh, and then um, Cinema Siren News is my other um, uh, film criticism, film promotion site on Twitter. And then um, our, at Art Insights is everything that has to do with Art Insights is at Art Insights. So Instagram and or on Facebook and, you know, my gallery is in rest and t- excuse me because I am walking as we didn't mention before. <laughs> I'm out and I'm out in nature. Um, so my gallery is in Reston Town Center, and I always have something really cool. Like right now, I have original art used to make the ET movie poster, and I have um, the storyboards used to make the Gremlins advanced uh, trailer. So I have these really random, amazing things. I have a lot of production art from Marvel and DC and Harry Potter and everything in my whole store is done by people that actually worked on the movies. It's no fan art. It's nothing inspired by. It's all promoting the people that made the movies that we love. So yeah, come come see me. It's Art Insights. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. I will definitely have to put the address to the shop in the show notes. Uh, once again, it's Leslie Comel, the founder of Cinema Siren. Thanks so much for coming on Picture Lock. My pleasure. <laughs> You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and I'm really excited because I got friends of this show, the epic film guys on the line. I got Nicholas Haskins and Justin Esquivel. Guys, welcome back to Picture Lock. I didn't know Justin was going to be here. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Sorry, Nick. I'm so sorry to ruin your experience. Uh, Thanks, Kevin, for having us on, man. It's been a long time. Seriously, a very long time. Too long. Too yeah. long. We it's miss awesome, you. So. Yeah, yeah, I know, man. I, You know, I, I'm hoping I still got the honorary epic film guy uh, jacket that I can put on every once in a while. You guys are obviously always welcome on the show. But, yeah, we got to make sure that we do the crossover episode uh, pretty soon here. But you guys have something going on uh, today uh, and through this weekend, actually, that is extremely important. I definitely wanted to have you guys on to talk about it. The live stream for The Cure. If you could, for the audience, you know, um, you know, just give a quick, you know, for anybody that is listening in for the first time, they don't know who the Epic Film guys are, and then go into uh, the live stream for The Cure and what that's all about. Justin, who are we? <laughs> we're two guys. Uh, we're two. We're in our mid mid to late thirties. That we talk about movies. Uh, we do movie reviews. We are a podcast. Uh, you know that popular thing all those young kids are doing these days, uh, where you can listen on your your cellular device and uh, hear us talking. That's right. Um, but no, in all reality, <laughs> we've been doing this for a few years. Um, We've been good friends for a long time. We love to review movies, talk craft beer, and, you know, have you guys tune in to experience that with us. But we are doing a very special event. Um, The day that this airs on Picture Lock, um, you can actually tune in to our live stream for The Cure 2.0. And I'm going to leave it to you, Nick, for you to tell his audience what that's all about. Cancer's probably affected you in your life, right, Kev? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I bet you... Probably 90% of the people that are listening to this, if not more, if not 100% of the people that are listening to this, uh, cancer has affected their life in some way or another, either their family, uh, close friend, neighbor, what, whatever and what have you. It's just something that affects everybody. I lost a really good friend of mine. Uh, like when I was younger, when I was in my early 20s, he was in his early 20s, uh, passed away from cancer. My mother-in-law died last year because of cancer. And it's just... Man, I hate it. I, I, I hate it, and I like to think that Justin and I are, I don't know, we have some kind of sway or something, right? Something. I don't know what, but, like, I just wanted to do something in the world to try to help beat cancer and to, and to, and to try to do some good. So last year, we did a 12-hour live stream 
and we had a whole bunch of different guests on and everything and we raised money all of it goes to a wonderful organization out of new york called the cancer research institute and they're a really really good charity uh, i took a look into a lot of the cancer charities when I, we started the event and a lot of them say you donate one dollar well 70 cents of it goes to a ceo's pocket 25 cents of it goes to overhead only five cents of it is left for actual cancer research and i found that deplorable so I wanted to find an organization that really makes sure that they put as much money as they possibly can while actually operating and having like the ability to operate into cancer research. So the Cancer Research Institute is 86 cents on the dollar. And that is a really, really, really good investment. So we raised $2,500 last year for cancer research. And this year, uh, I want to smash that goal. I want to destroy that goal. So instead of doubling the amount of time, I decided to triple it. $5,000. Yep. And we're going to try to raise $5,000. And uh, as of the day that we're recording this, spoiler alert, it's not live. Sorry, Kev. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. The audience knows. But, but as of today, as of right now, uh, a few days before the event yet, we are 14% uh, in toward our goal already well, through early donations and through merchandise sales uh, with the live stream for the Cure logo on it. Justin's an amazing graphic designer, which is just one of those things that is, is really great to have as a podcaster because he does really, really great graphic work. So you see that logo and it immediately, whenever you see it, you immediately know what it is and it's immediately recognizable. And I've been showering people with stickers for it and we've been pumping that merch like crazy. So 30 hours starting at 6 p.m. Eastern time tonight and going until 6 p.m. Eastern time on Sunday, the 20th. We're going to be live for 30 hours over the course of those three days, all to raise money to fight cancer. Yeah, you know, Nick, I think like you said, uh, we all have stories. I think about like, man, just right after I graduated high school, this guy, Robert Purnell, he died of colon cancer. And I was like, what? Like, we're literally 18, you know, years old. How, how did this happen? I think about Joe Weinberg, who uh, he passed of throat cancer, never smoked a day in his life. And, uh, man, I just remember uh, Joe went to my church, and uh, there's this brother that had gone out to L.A. Uh, just to be with him. And he, I, I, I'll never forget he he was there when you know Joe passed over, and uh, he said that he like woke up, he had these big crocodile tears, and he was like, "Is is Marva all right?" And that's his that was his wife, um, and uh, he asked if his son was all right, and he was like, "Yep," and then he just closed his eyes, and that was it. And so you're right, man. Like uh, I think. There are different diseases that, you know, uh, have taken people from us. And uh, so I think this live stream for The Cure um, is just a great way to use, you know, the platform as the Epic Film Guys, but to try to make a difference in the world. So um, one of the questions I have is, you know, if I'm listening to this right now and I want to find out more information or I want to tune into the live stream, like how can how can I do that? Yeah, where can they find more information about it, Justin? You can go to livestreamforthecure.com, and that's that's right now the current hub for all the information about it. You can also, if you're on Facebook, go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash epicfilmguys. There's actually an event page for Livestream for the Cure 2.0. If you're new to the Epic Film Guys, check out our Facebook page, and all that information with the Livestream for the Cure event page is included and attached to that and jump on in there there's going to be amazing things uh this week and that's the, the cool thing about this um for those of you new to it there's going to be so many different segments from so many different participating podcasts so many different people that have decided to take time out of their life to be a part of it and help raise money and um all the segments are going to be super fun and if you if you tune into this thing you're going to have a blast because you're going to hear tons of different voices tons of different people all who have experienced uh similar situations with cancer and then those people that just really want to help you know get the word out and, and help us with 
fighting cancer. So that those are the those are the places where you can check out information on that. And of course, if you're listening to this right now, um, you can go to livestreamforthecure.com and you can actually make your early donation right through the website. Yeah, and it's it's um, we're going to be live on YouTube and on Twitch. Both of those links are up on the livestreamforthecure.com page, uh, but it's just just find Epic Foam guys on either uh, YouTube or Twitch, and you'll find it. And yep, we're going to have a ton, and I mean a ton, of of podcasts and guests, all just amazing, amazing content creators who uh, just want to help, you know, and, and just want to do something to help raise money uh, to fight against cancer. And last year, like the Cancer Research Institute, they doubled all of our donations that we made in the month of May and they're doing it again this year. So everything that, that we make because it's um, national immunotherapy month this month, and that's what they do. They do uh, immunotherapy research for cancer. Literally every single dime that we raise uh, all throughout the month of May, they're going to double it. So Kev, if we hit our goal of $5,000, we can raise $10,000 for the Cancer Research Institute, which I, I mean, I mean, like I said, I, I just want to do good in the world, and 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 I really, really think that you know, Justin and I, I, I think that we we have a platform, and we have a big enough voice, and we have a big enough presence in that community and in the podcasting community where we can get out there and we can say, you know, yes, you know, please come and join us, please come and help us, and let's come together and let's raise money to to do this thing, and. The most important thing for for everybody that's out there, you can win prizes, just tons and tons of fun prizes if you tune in. You'll get shout-outs on the stream. You'll get a, an alert that'll pop up on the stream if you donate in real time when we're on the air. And there are just some seriously amazing and talented people like uh, Randy and Tommy from Miserable Retail Slave. We've got Paul from The Countdown, a wonderful podcast out of Perth. Dina Marie from Twisted Philly, a true crime podcast uh, who's just absolutely slaying it. And uh, Heather from Sunshine and Power Cuts, literally like the light in the sky of positivity if you ever uh, are, are feeling down. Uh, tons and tons of people from our Podfix network uh, that are going to be helping us do all sorts of things. It's just going to be crazy kinds of fun. I a blast. I can't say it enough. Bless, like, it, it's going to be so much fun, and it's all to raise money for a good cause. So please come and check it out. Like I said, we're live for 30 hours. It's going to be 48 hours of time. 30 hours during that we're live. I'm going to sleep probably some point during that. Maybe eat. I'm not sure yet. <laughs> and it's just it's just going to be great. And it, it's all for a good, good cause. So please, please come check it out. We would really, really love to have you. It's Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with the epic film guys who are not only movie lovers and lovers of film, but they're also some guys that are trying to do some good in the world. We're talking right now about their live stream for The Cure. Uh, All right, guys, so just uh, wrapping it out one more time, if you could, uh, where can people go to find out more information uh, and to hopefully donate as well to the cause? Well, first place would be livestreamforthecure.com. You can make early donations now. And, of course, uh, after the event, you can always check out us and our weekly podcast at www.epicfilmguys.com. All the information about Livestream for the Cure 2.0, you can reach directly through our social media platforms. We are on Twitter at Epic Film Guys and, of course, our Facebook page, Epic Film Guys. Search it. It comes up immediately, and that is where you'll find the event page for our Livestream for the Cure 2.0. Join in on the conversation. Even if you can't donate, still join us. And, yeah, and just, just come out and have fun and be part of the yeah. conversation regardless we just, just want share you to your story with us, with us. Exactly. even if you have a story share exactly. your story you don't have to donate anything you just it's it's more about bringing people together and it's more about you know finding you know just doing everything that we can uh to try to reach into the reach into the deeper pockets out there if you don't have the deepest pocket that's okay you know we you don't have to that. donate just come come and have a good time we'd love to have fun we'd love to entertain people and well, this will, event will probably kill us. It'll be 30 hours of us trying to do <laughs> live content. But by God, we're going to go out just making you laugh. So please, please, please. It's going to be so much fun. It's going to be a blast, I promise. Please come out. It's going to be great. Man, I, I I love it, guys. And I appreciate the fact that you guys are doing this. You know, one of the things that I think is that uh, it's not Michael. it's not enough just to have a platform. Um, but I think what separates, you know, 
at least in our world of film criticism, what separates, you know, true great critics is when you can use your platform uh, for something good. And I think you guys are definitely doing that. So once again, Nick and Justin, the epic film guys, I really appreciate you coming on Picture Lock. And uh, I wish you nothing but the best this weekend as you uh, go for a live stream for The Cure 2.0. And I, I hope you do get some sleep and make sure that you, you know, you, you got an IV drip going at least. <laughs> I have a beer IV drip going. All right, guys, thanks for coming on the show. Dude, you're amazing, Kev. We love you. We love you, man. Thank you. And that's all for this episode. I'd like to thank my guests, Claire Fowler, Leslie Kumal, Justin Esquivel, and Nick Haskins for coming on the show. Be sure to catch up on back episodes of the podcast and subscribe in iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Blueberry, wherever you catch your podcasts. And in fact, if you are a fan of Alexa skills, just say, Alexa, play Picture Lock and tune in and I'll come right up. Feel free to leave a five-star review of the show as well. I always appreciate those. You can find Picture Lock on most social media. All social media is at Picture Lock Show. Be sure to follow me on the Stardust app for my quick movie, TV, and trailer reviews. Just look up at Picture Lock Show, and I am on there giving you my thoughts. Watch back episodes of the TV show at youtube.com slash Show. And subscribe to it to get some incredible value and see interviews with filmmakers and the like. Uh, this my latest release of the analysis of Childish Gambino uh, with This Is America has been absolutely amazing just to hear you guys' thoughts on the video, the analysis, and even some of the things that I missed. So definitely check out the YouTube channel. Can't wait to hear your thoughts on these different videos. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, you can fill out a form on the website. Now, I got a question. Did this episode resonate with you? Are you going to participate in the live stream for The Cure? Are you going to check out Leslie at her art gallery? What's your favorite episode of Picture Lock so far this year? These are the questions that I need answers to. So send me an email and let me know at picturelockshow at gmail.com. All music is done by Mike S. The Prophet 13. Thanks, bro. I'm Kevin Sampson, and until next time, I hope you stay locked on film.